following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. is a continuation of a sermon series entitled Old Words, New Life, Transformative Teachings from the Old Testament. One of the great values of the Old Testament is that in the many characters that cross its pages, it deals with a marvelous range of ordinary people who, even though they lived in a very different time, have much in common with people today. In their experiences, we can discover insights for our own lives and our own time. This morning, we're considering the story of Jacob. His name in Hebrew means one who supplants. He got that name because as he was born at the same time as his twin brother Esau, he was coming out second, but With one hand, Jacob was literally grabbing on to the heel of his brother. From then on, Jacob was the guy who was always angling to get ahead. He was something of a rascal, a bit long on ambition and a bit short on conscience. He never felt much need for God as he was growing up. He felt he could get ahead by his own wits. If he were living today... He'd probably be a hedge fund trader or maybe an unscrupulous politician. He, He knew well how to advance himself and get what he wanted. And he was quite successful until one night he ran out of steam and he found himself wrestling with God. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Jacob and Esau were the two sons of Isaac. From a young age, Jacob was ambitious and shrewd. Much of what he got in his early years, he managed to wrest away from his more slow-witted brother Esau. You may remember the story of how Jacob managed to get Esau, in a moment of exhaustion, to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup, the birthright being Esau's right as the elder brother to a double share of the family inheritance. Later, through clever trickery, Jacob also managed to get their father's blessing, which was intended for Esau. Repeatedly, Jacob's ambitious cunning bore fruit. It also got him into real trouble. After Jacob cheated Esau out of the blessing, Esau was furious and sought to kill him. Jacob had to flee, and he finally took up residence at the distant estate of his uncle Laban. There, Jacob, the swindler, encountered something of divine justice as he came face to face with a bigger swindler, his uncle Laban. Laban tricked Jacob on his wedding night when Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel and ended up marrying Leah, and then he had to work seven more years in a work obligation to Laban in order to also marry Rachel. Laban additionally tried to swindle Jacob out of his rightful earnings, but Jacob responded with his own shrewdness, and he ended up rich. 
Jacob had all those personal qualities that often get people far in a society. Energy, toughness, cleverness, drive. On his quest to get ahead, he did mistreat some people along the way. He cheated his brother Esau. He alienated himself from his father. He neglected his wife Leah in some ways. He sparred constantly with his uncle Laban. He was not really a likable guy. And while he managed to accumulate wealth, it did not look as though his life was going to end up being anything meaningful. If he had been left on his own, he would finally have just vanished from the world stage along with all of his ill-gotten gains. But God had other ideas. Ultimately, Jacob got into such conflict with Laban that he had to leave Laban's estate. His only option at that point was to return to the land of Canaan. He journeyed back with his family, with his wives and children, until they arrived at the river Jabbok, a tributary of the Jordan. At that point, he had a serious problem. Somewhere beyond the Jabbok was his brother Esau. Esau, whom he had swindled out of the family inheritance and out of his father's blessing. Jacob suspected that a meeting with Esau might not go well. So he sent messengers on ahead to inform Esau that he was coming. His worst fears were confirmed when the messengers returned, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. The scripture goes on to report, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies, thinking, If Esau comes to the one company and destroys it, then the company that is left will escape. Jacob had arrived at the point in life where his resources and his cleverness had run out. It is at such points that people sometimes begin to think about God, and that's exactly what happened with Jacob. Jacob had largely ignored God for quite a few years. He recognized that God was at work in his life, and he knew that God was calling him for some destiny, but he had largely avoided paying much attention to God. Now, for the first time in a long time, he turned to God, and he seriously prayed. He said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to me, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, And now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with their children. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. Jacob recalled that God had been very good to him, in spite of his less than admirable behavior, a wonderful example of God's grace the way God blesses us far beyond what we deserve. And he recalled he was supposed to be a part of a plan of God much larger than himself. That night, Jacob sent his family to one side of the river while he stayed alone on the other. That time at the Jabbok would be a time for him to reconsider his whole life. He knew he needed some time for spiritual focus, and he prepared for a night of soul-searching. Suddenly, from the shadows, a figure emerged 
and engaged Jacob in wrestling. Who this figure was is never made clear. It seems to have been more than just a man. Was it an angel? Perhaps, as some Christian commentators have suggested, the figure who emerged and grabbed on to Jacob was Christ. In any case, Jacob, by the end of this experience, was sure that in some profound way he had encountered God. For afterwards, he named the place Peniel, which means the face of God, as he said, I have seen God face to face. In short, Jacob found himself that night wrestling with God. In that wrestling, we can see an image of what life as a whole had been like for Jacob and what life may be like for many people today. In a wrestling match, you apply all your strength, your agility, your cleverness. You struggle like mad to try to come out winning. That surely is what life is like for some people today. One grand struggle to try to come out winning. It is what life was like from the very beginning for Jacob. From the moment he was hanging on to Esau's heel, through all of his tussles with Laban, Jacob experienced life as one grand wrestling match. Jacob was quite good at such wrestling. He, he was a champion at coming out winning. Indeed, in the wrestling match with the shadowy stranger, Jacob once again seemed to be about to prevail. When all at once, the stranger struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. I can testify to what happens when your hip does not work. You are not going to win a wrestling match. Suddenly, Jacob found himself facing defeat. He had applied all his energy and ability and had come up short. It is as though the stranger had perhaps toyed with him, letting him exert himself to the fullest and, and to think that he was going to win, only to so quickly put him out of commission at the last. When in the story the stranger says to Jacob, you have striven with God and prevailed, that must be understood as a word of irony. For in fact, Jacob did not prevail at all. In the end, he found himself powerless against this divine wrestler. His situation in the wrestling match was thus a precise reflection of the larger circumstances in which he found himself, as he found himself powerless in the face of the forces of Esau, which were pressing down upon him. Jacob, at this point by the river Jabbok, came face to face with his own fundamental weakness and the fact that his life had been wrongly focused. He saw that his shrewdness and his ability were not going to carry him any further. He saw that he was desperately in need of a power and a guide far greater than himself. He was desperately in need of God. So he grabbed on to the divine wrestler, appealing for blessing. It was a grip made not in aggressiveness, but in desperation. Or as Frederick Beekner once put it, it was a grip not of violence, but of need, like the grip of a drowning man. There are times in many people's lives when they come to a similar point, when in the midst of all the wrestling of life, they recognize how deeply they are in need of God. 
Here, the story of Jacob's wrestling provides a picture of key aspects of that human encounter with God. It's significant that at the outset, as Jacob sat by that river, worried, troubled, and alone, the divine figure came to him. That is a picture of what God does for everyone in Christ. How at the point of our deepest need and our greatest wanderings, Christ comes to us. Christ meets us where we are. But our encounter with the Lord may not be smooth because, like Jacob, we likely carry all sorts of baggage from our past. There are the wrongs that we have done, the ways that we have avoided God, the tendency that we have to rely on ourselves instead of God. So we may find ourselves in a spiritual struggle like Jacob. We may find ourselves wrestling with all of our fears, our regrets, our uncertainties, our weaknesses, in the midst of it all, wrestling with God. For some people, this wrestling continues for a long time. For Jacob, the resolution ultimately came when he stopped wrestling against God and asked for blessing. In that moment, he acknowledged his deep spiritual need and he opened himself to the grace and the power of God. What he discovered in the end is that God is a God of mercy and God is a God of transformation. The divine figure answered Jacob by blessing him. The blessing signified God's acceptance of Jacob in spite of all of his flaws. But the blessing was not merely a stamp of approval on Jacob's previous behavior. With the blessing came transformation, which was signified in the changing of Jacob's name. No longer would he be called Jacob, the supplanter, but he would be called Israel, which means God strives or God reigns. This is a powerful image for what can happen in our own encounter with God. When we come to acknowledge our need for God and open ourselves to God's presence with us, God meets us with a grace that covers all of our flaws and failures, and God meets us with transformation. Through Christ, we become like Jacob, people in whom the Spirit of God is striving, people in whom the Spirit of God now reigns. No longer do we have to be people who try to do it all ourselves, who are desperately grasping after everything possible while trying to avoid the worst. No longer are we people who continually wander off into our own pursuits, but we can be people who join in the movement of God's Spirit who live now secure in the blessing of God. The real transformation that occurs in Jacob becomes apparent as the story continues to unfold further. The next day, Jacob would approach Esau in an attitude of humility and self-giving. He sent waves of gifts on ahead of himself to Esau. 
We heard in this morning's scripture passage how he divided hundreds of farm animals among various servants and sent them in flock after flock toward Esau, with each servant instructed to say, These animals belong to your servant Jacob. He sent them as a gift to you, my master Esau, and he also is coming behind us. As Jacob got closer to Esau, he himself bowed down before him. It was quite the new approach for Jacob. Suddenly, he was the gracious giver instead of the conniving swindler. In the end, there occurred a wonderful reconciliation between the two brothers. It is one of the greatest reconciliation scenes in the Bible, as the two estranged brothers would embrace. Subsequently, Jacob would become the patriarch of the people of Israel, the father of the twelve tribes, whose name, Israel, would become attached to the whole people. Jacob would become truly a person of God. Perhaps there's a point in everyone's life when they arrive at the river Jabbok, that point of realizing that all our own striving just won't cut it. Such a time can be a moment of grace and transformation if, like Jacob, we open ourselves afresh to God and we can journey then anew in God's blessing, knowing God's forgiveness and God's power and taking our place as a part of God's eternal purposes. Let us pray. Eternal God, we give thanks that through Jesus Christ, you come to us. You come to us in our weakness and confusion, our waywardness in life. You reach to us with grace and transformation. Inspire us, O Lord, to open our hearts to you today in faith, that your grace might flow through us, washing us with your forgiveness drawing us to yourself, letting us know how we are deeply loved by you and how you have a calling for our lives. And work then within us, O Lord, with your transformation, that we might truly be shaped as your people, enabled to walk more closely with you, enabled to find our true purpose as your people, enabled to share in the fullness of life you intend for us, and to know your everlasting promises. We thank you, O Lord, that as you work in us, you draw us not only into fellowship with yourself, but into fellowship with one another. You draw us into the life of your church so that together we may grow in grace and grow in your transforming power and be enabled then to reach out with your compassion and goodness to the world. We thank you for how you are at work in our church today give you special thanks this morning for our third graders. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with these families as you would guide them to grow as your disciples together. We thank you for our larger church family and lift up our fellow United Mothers this morning at the Christ Woodland United Mothers Church. We reach out in concern to people in times of need. We lift up those who are in times of illness and pray especially this morning for Mary Lou McGregor and those who are in times of mourning and Give thanks, especially this morning, for the life of Fran Eckert. We are thankful, God, for how she touched the lives of so many children in this church in years past. 
we entrust her, Lord, into your everlasting arms. We look into the broader world, seeing a world of such trouble and pain. We recognize, O Lord, that you are still at work today, and that we have a place in your purposes. Lead us as we would answer your call to be people who show forth your grace to others, who are instruments for your peace and your truth in our world, who are sharing in your works in our time. Lead us, O God, as we today would recognize how you are reaching to us. Move us as we respond in faith and as we look to you in trust and give you the thanks and praise for your guiding power and your eternal promises. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.